I am very proud to be here. Thank you. And I'm sorry if today I'm not exactly excessively full of joie de vivre. <laughs> Why? What's going on? Why not? Uh, well, as I wrote, and I still stick to that metaphor, some people thought I am crazy, that uh, the pandemic is uh, uh, kill Bill-like hit to capitalism, no? I still think that now with the second wave and it what will follow, it is becoming more and more clear that what I provocatively call communism, some kind of socialization of health care, of our care for environment, of our economy and so on, will prove necessary. But as I wrote in a text with, I think it was in that one, which Jacobin was kind enough to publish, you know, when we speak with about our situation, where is it moving? I think the crucial term is a deeply dialectical notion of Marx, which is tendency, tendential law. Like Marx speak about the tendential law for the fall of rate of profit. But as Marx added, this is a tendency which can cause counter gesture, a counter movement, so the result is not predestined. And I think that, uh, for example, what happened in Capitol was precisely a very strong reaction, pseudo-populist reaction to this tendency. So, yes, in the long term, but not in the sense of predestination, it moves in our direction, the situation. But many things can happen in between. There is no big capitalized historical necessity. I hope just so that I say my prayer at the beginning, my mantra, I hope that you will all agree that one of the most dangerous ideological motives is that today it's a state of emergency, it's not the time for politics. We should forget about other problems, ecology or whatever, or maybe not forget them, but it's a medical emergency which should be left to doctors, health administrations, and so on and so on. I claim, no, it's maybe the most political moment of our lives. Capitalism itself is changing tremendously. Now our future is decided. Now it's the time for politicization. I agree with Greta Thunberg, which just incidentally, I think she is 18 now. A couple yes. of days ago, she had a birthday. You can marry her legally. Yeah, Sorry? happy birthday, Greta. Yeah, you yeah, can marry, you and, can now uh, get married to when, her legally. <laughs> yeah, when she said, trust science. But I hope she meant it in a true way, not trust cheap science popularizers, like Elon Musk, who promised in 10 years, without even knowing what they are talking about, in 10 years from now, we will be able to communicate directly with our minds. You know, how you recognize an authentic scientist that, I quoted Habermas here, what we learned in the pandemic is not only many new things, we learned also so we know now much more about what we don't know. 
And this doesn't simply mean we are helpless. This means science will not simply tell us what to do. Politics is needed. I said my prayer, please. The scene is yours. Yeah, you know, I think that the United States often seizes on these moments that they call a state of exception. And we see that as a way that they deal with crises, whether they're manufactured or natural. That happened with 9-11. So they passed, you know, unprecedented laws criminalizing their own citizens, um, killing people abroad because it was a state of exception, because there's no time to question. I think the same thing is happening here. I think the same thing will happen after the, you know, riots in the Capitol. Um, I was wondering if you can talk about your vision, which is about a new communism, a new global communism. And can you expand on what you wrote in your Jacobin article, which is called, um, we need a socialist reset, not a corporate great reset. Yes. Yes. But you see, I think you may disagree that already this term, the great reset is falls into what I was telling about this uh, tendential law. It's a reaction of a obvious, everybody knows this, obvious tendency that the situation is pushing us towards some kind of what I call communism. So this is, I think, the reaction of the big business, big capital. There are two main reactions. One is this, corporate reaction, we retain formally our freedoms, but as isolated in our bubbles and so on, where already problems explode because, you know, for the privileged few of us to live in our bub uh, uh, bubbles, millions of people have still to run around and so on. But the other reaction, and I wouldn't underestimate it, is what people often too easily dismiss as Trump's cognitive dissonance and so on. People who, and in a strange way, I no, respect them is not the right word. Just uh, okay, understand them, whatever. You know, I know that the proof of the phrase, uh, we want our life back. Something was stolen from us and we want it back. Elections, our way of life and so on. I know that. Basically, you know, as a Hegelian, I always look at a particular spin of universal notion. When somebody says, give us our life back, our normality back, we always have to ask ourselves, let's take a closer look. What do they really mean by our life? And you see it's to put it in a very, very general way, it's the middle-class white life, discreetly supported by billionaires who prefer to stay, to stay in the background. And this is, if I may go into a little bit of a Hegelian political, don't be afraid, reflection. <laughs> this, is how, this is how I understand, you see, the political use of Hegel's notion of concrete universality. If I say concrete universality, people react, oh, that madman Hegel who thought that universal idea generates all content out of itself. No, 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 no. Let's talk, I'm sorry if some of you know it, but it's crucial today. Let's take another nice example. Black Lives Matter. Obviously, this privileges certain group. So 
the even some centrist liberals and right wingers made the counterpoint no all lives matter i say no because if you read closely what black lives matter means it doesn't mean you other guys can drop that it means this in every concrete situation there is a certain type of oppression which gives the tone or the specific color to the totality if you talk today about political violence social violence violence against other races police violence the way blacks are treated is the hidden particular model it's the model of all violence while when they say apparently in a neutral way all lives matter no they secretly this all is a false universality they really mean black middle class value which are still hegemonic matters so my hegelian paradox is this one it has very concrete political consequences that if you say all lives matter it appears to be a universal statement oh humanism we all matter but secretly it privileges a certain group but if you say black lives matter although it's in its form of appearance a particular statement it is the only truly universal matters to give it matter universal statement to give you a simple example if in germany in the late 30s you wanted to talk about racism you should put forward uh, anti-semitism the situation of jews and today in israel and west bank i'm telling my friends if you want really to be anti-racist and also faithful to jewish legacy ah let's say what you are saying about palestinians in the west bank so you see uh, this is also i think in a way the uh, the situation with covid it became that concrete universality we all talk about it but we should put it in its very complex context because uh, first uh, uh, let's never forget that covid as i already said is not the pandemic is not simply a, a problem of health of biochemistry and so on and so on it's part of our situation of today's global capitalism works of our uh, the way we relate to nature and so on and so on this is why i agree here with a philosopher with whom i otherwise often don't agree bruno latour who said this is only the beginning what will follow is either other pandemics or global warming signs are everywhere so that's why i don't buy this formula of return to normality no by normality we secretly mean the good old life when you know that's where i have this minimum of don't like the word sympathy but understanding for those uh, anti mask anti vaccine protesters they were used to a certain mode of everyday life and it's not simply just that i understand them you go out to a bar you drink with friends i will not go into all this 
I think we have to accept heroically that this is over. And uh, uh, now we are already in the middle of the political struggle of where all this will go. So to conclude with another repetition of myself, I like to repeat jokes if they are good. The best joke that I heard along these lines, it's not a joke, is in Chile when protests began in 2019, October, you know that their motto was wonderful one. Not we do a socialist revolution and everything will be okay, but another end of the world is possible. <laughs> Not the one that the media... And this should be our motto today. Yes, a certain way of life is over, but let's not uh, let's not accept the alternative that is offered to us, either total digital and social control, or on the other side, uh, this uh, false of Trump populist false denial. Because the, yeah. the logic of Trump and his followers is clear, is relatively clear here. You pretend to speak about, let's cut, of course, the bullshit simply about these uh, middle classes who feel threatened. Mm-hmm. And uh, they feel, that's, why, that's where conspiracy theory enters. They feel threatened on the one hand by COVID, it ruins their way of life. Uh, they feel threatened by immigrants, although here already I'm trying to think as realist as possible. Maybe at some level, they have a point, but it's very difficult to find these points. Because, you know, as we all know, at the same time, immigrants are exploited. We know the situation in California, at least, how they work without any social security, healthcare, and so on and so on. And you see, this is a beautiful example of where post-colonial economic exploitation uh, is connected with covid I remember in the summer uh, when uh, 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 illegal Mexican or Latino American workers were much needed, uh, uh, they discovered catastrophic situation in many big farms. I remember one farm decided to test its 180, somewhere in Tennessee, I think, 180 illegal immigrant workers, and you know how many tested positive? Well, to cut a long story short, all of them, you know. (laughs) So, uh, you see, this already is a connection. So, the way the enemy is attacking today is to forcing us into what Hegel would have called abstract thinking. Now is the time for for COVID. No, COVID is inherently part of a much more complex situation where COVID is obviously linked to protests against injustice, to ecological crisis, and so on, and so on. But again, now I'm finally, my God, I need a dominatrix. I need a woman to look me (laughs) Finally, to your Angela question, why communism? Because you know why I put this provocative formula? Look, Believe me or not, I don't like Trump. The only slight point, I hope you will agree here, where I find, again, sympathy is totally wrong word. 
But what I find problematic in how he was excluded from, and he should have been from, uh, from uh, tweeting, from Facebook, and so on, is you know they say for tweet uh, they say uh, Facebook or Twitter excluded him. Sorry, can you personalize this? Which body who excluded him? The problem is this one, as I developed following some Italian Marxist economists already a decade ago. Think about what is happening today with big figures like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, uh, Zuckerberg, and so on. Uh, the problem is that something that was not quite predicted or even envisaged by Marx happened. Let's take, sorry, my old example, Bill Gates. He is not exploiting his workers in any direct way, maybe. So I hear he's even paying them relatively well. His wealth comes not from profit, but from rent. Through his almost monopolist yeah, yeah. situation, we all, by using Microsoft or by buying Amazon and so on, are, uh, are basically paying him uh, rent. He's exploiting even Jeff Bezos. I know how he treats his workers, but we have a strange return from profit to rent. What happens with this rent debt? And that's the tragedy. A private individual, or maybe many of them doesn't matter, privatizes something that Marx called which is always like, if you want to communicate, you need uh, Facebook or whatever, or you use Windows and so on. If you want to buy books, Amazon is incredible. For my type of book, social theory, I was told they cover more than 60% of the sales. If they decide, they can ruin or make a hit of a book. So what I'm saying is that, is that you see, this is one situation when society has to take control. Today is the poor Trump. He fully deserved it. But don't you agree that since de facto, even if they deny it, Facebook and so on, uh, Twitter are not simply private companies. They are private companies which own part of our social space. And that's what horrified me when they say, again, sorry, I'm repeating myself, Facebook excluded. Sorry, yeah. who excluded yeah. him? Do they have yeah. some ethical committee or whatever, you know? Yeah, so, they... They Sorry, have please. well. They it's not just that they own part of our social space. They actively try to undermine public space in every other sphere where it would be democratically available. And so you see, with like protest, protest happens in the public sphere. We are lacking that, right? So socially, we're alienated in multiple meanings of the word, but we really don't have a space to connect publicly. And it's been generated yeah. over and over and over again. And these companies have a monopoly on social connection and public space. And then you see that we're traditionally, you know, public space was a political arena for, for many people. It, it's shifted to Facebook, it's shifted to Twitter. So because our normal political arena that was democratically available, like, you know, a town square, right? Or yeah. even a, like a Lions Club or a community center, or even a mall in the 90s, 
Um, those were like our last public spaces. Now what we have is Twitter, Facebook, social media, and people are still fighting those political fights. Those are still spaces of this kind of feeling of democratic participation. But these firms have unprecedented tech authoritarian control over them. And, you know, it's troubling to see like the rah, 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 like cheering it on because at the same time that we need to be, you know, potentially nationalizing these companies, we need to be fighting for like real public space and places to connect physically, socially. I cannot agree more with you because now I will go to, I am also, believe it or not, not just a madman, but also uh, an ordinary man. And as part of my <laughs> bourgeois identity, I like to go to this old fashioned public space is like a crowded street with small bookstores, cafeterias, and so on. And you know, maybe some of you know it, in uh, in Santa Monica, south of LA, you, there was, I think it was the third or, or the fourth street for the, from the ocean, which was such an incredibly lively uh, place, cafeterias, a couple of bookstores, and so on. Now, it's all privatized, it's malls. And yeah. never forget, malls, uh, malls, shopping malls are a pseudo-public space. They are not really a public space, they are privately controlled. Yeah. Some malls directly, for example, prohibit people who look homeless or too poor to mm -hmm. enter, and so on, and so on. And this, I think, is uh, but a tendency that we have to fight. Why? Because at the same time, as we know, uh, this all this media, uh, internet as such, especially and so on, SMS on uh, iPhones, play a tremendous role in today's social organization mobilization of us. I here agree with Julian Assange. I think that much more important than disclosing the data about what the uh, uh, United States Army, okay, that was important, but nonetheless was doing in Iraq and so on, is his, <coughs> he wrote a book on Google. The thesis is Google is a privatized version of NSA, gathering all the information, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the danger today. Like we who are talking today, we think we are just communicating in, in a public space. No, we are already controlled. And that's my answer. I hope we, I hope you will agree against those who claim that uh, Assange is unilateral. Why does he focus only on the United States? Why not more on China, Russia, and so on? Well, I agree. I don't defend Putin. I know some of my friends were arrested for that's the beautiful paradox for acting in a Marxist way and trying to organize workers around Beijing. But you know what's the point here? Uh, in China, people are well aware that they are controlled by state, that they are not free. The ideological attraction and danger of the United States is that people think they are free. And I claim the most uh, effective Unfreedom is the unfreedom that you experience as freedom. What can be more free than searching on the web, looking at different uh, clips from movies, talking like with you today, and so on and so on. But everything is not only registered, registered, but also manipulated today. So I agree with you, not only that public space is 
one of the key points of struggle today, but also that, also that, uh, uh, also, uh, also that, uh, uh, like, public space is never neutral. You know, I'm not laughing. And you, uh, uh, you know, what is my uh, uh, next, uh, uh, sorry, uh, what is my model of how in a non-racist way you should proceed? You know that in Haiti, okay, they got stuck in problems after Toussaint Louverture, I'm talking about Haiti Revolution, where it was an incredible event. My thesis is that French Revolution became really a world historical event only through its repetition in Haiti. I agree. In, in 1804, they finally established a constitution. And although it may appear subtly racist, I think it was the right gesture. You know how they define citizens of Haiti? Every citizen of Haiti, it's not a joke, I checked it. Uh, in, uh, 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 without regard of the color of his skin or religion, is black. I found this ingenious. Why? Because it shows the lie of the previous mm -hmm. constitution where de facto it meant you know, especially with patronizing liberals. Yeah, you black are also human, but this means that you have to work hard to become like us. Mm -hmm. It was the hidden standard. And that's why, again, precisely as a universalist, I don't think that black lives matter is in any way close to what I am really sometimes afraid of, so-called identity politics in the bad sense, which neglects universality. No, no, universality is not excluded. Again, we are back to Hegel, but this is Hegel's lesson for today. Universality, <coughs> sorry, does not mean you should forget your roots. Every great universality is clearly rooted in a even very specific situation. For example, What's that? Did she die recently? Sorry, it's not a racist, it's my simple senility. Who wrote Beloved? Oh, you know, uh, it's a black lady. Toni Morrison. You know what's Tony interesting? Morrison. Yeah, yeah. Some of my <laughs> radical leftist friends have problems with her that she's okay. maybe too liberal. But I still say, I tell my students, if you want to learn what is modern universal subjectivity. Look at Beloved. That in that gesture, preferring to expose to death, kill her daughter, or I think, mm -hmm. uh, just to avoid slavery and so on and so on, she acts as a universal subject. So you see, this is Kegel's lesson. And this should be our, who try to be honest, white, anti-racist to blacks. It's not that you have to make a choice between being truly universal and still sticking to your identity. No, because if our white universal identity excludes your black particular identity, this means it's in another way also particular, even if it appears universal. 
But that's, uh, that's the miracle of, that's the miracle for me of that book and uh, other examples like that. For example, for me, I still think that it was an incredible event, which, you know the story, I like to repeat it. It almost made me cry. You know what happened with, after Toussaint Louverture's death, Napoleon sent a whole army to Haiti, no? Thousands of soldiers to crush the rebellion. And here we already see who are, sorry for the naivety, good white men and black, bad white men. Uh, my God, you see my racist sleep. I want you to say <laughs> black white men. What I'm saying is that uh, Napoleon was horrible there. He said that the case of Haiti, where blacks took power, is so dangerous that not only the revolution have to be defeated, but all have to be killed and new slaves brought. While in contrast to them, the Jacobins received them the delegation from Haiti years before and said openly they are no less French citizens than ourselves and so But now the moment of beauty. You know why Napoleon's army lost? You know the story. It makes me cry. It's beautiful. When Napoleon's army was approaching black, the black army, you know that there were many, Napoleon used them as this uh, secondary force, many Polish soldiers. And they heard certain sounds from the black camp. And they thought, oh, it must be some primitive African tribal songs, whatever. And when they come closer, they discovered the black army. They were singing Marseillaise. And then mm. uh, the Polish army Napoleon, in Napoleon's army, the Polish soldiers said, wait a minute, are we here on the right side? No. And they changed sides. This is why, even if, unfortunately, in 805-6, I don't know when, things went a little bit wrong, and they decided to kill all white people in Haiti, they explicitly exempted the Poles. You know, so you see how I don't agree when some People criticized me for, uh, oh, but still, Marseillaise was a model here. Yes, but it was a model fully appropriated by the black in the sense that I claim black slaves there have more right to sing, Marse to, to sing Marseillaise than the white soldiers sent there by Napoleon. And if you apply just this criterion, okay, how do you stand towards Haiti? Even today, you know, they are still paying the price for that. Even today, yeah. it yeah. remains the problematic point. Like the big hero of American liberal left, Thomas Jefferson. Ah, mm -hmm. that was his. He says, the Saint Louverture, that's a barbarian, a savage, no debate, uh, no debate with him, and so on, and so on. You know, so for me, it's, uh, it's uh, and also that's also why I wonder. Let's go a little bit more into problematic waters. Oh. That's why okay. I am not totally at ease with this topic of cultural appropriation as form of neo-colonialism. I see the tendency, and I and I support it. But listen, if we play this game to the end, then are not in some sense. 
the original black slave music, or I don't know to what extent it's original, soul and all those religious gospel song. So uh, white or Jewish racist can also say, oh, they appropriated our stuff. Yes, maybe, but in appropriating it, they made it more authentic than the white people who were referring to the same topics and so on and so on. That's why I love, they may appear singular, crazy, but I love this even genetic, uh, uh, all genetic uh, investigations are not just bullshit racist. You discover different things, like an Israeli geneticist, uh, maybe you know the story, discovered by uh, DNA analysis historical, no, that today's, uh, today's, that uh, the uh, that how uh, genetically the Jews of that time of around Jesus Christ were much closer genetically to today's Palestinians. <laughs> these these are exciting things for me. You know, this shows yeah. you much of bullshit is said there. But nonetheless, I didn't forget about it. Your big question about uh, white communism. <coughs> I think that in some sense, that's why I find it so attractive. It, it's horrible thing to say that today's situation is attractive, but fascinating, although tragic, that everybody had, has to accept that, A, at some level, at some level, Economy has to be socialized. Look at the lowest of the lowest, Donald Trump. He had de facto to practice some kind of universal basic income. Okay, he did it in a cheating way. Much more money went to different big companies, institutions. But nonetheless, he had to accept this. Hey, people should not starve as a principle. And B, this should cover all independently of... Uh, race and so on and so on, how he treated each other. So uh, uh, this is the first thing. The second thing, elements of socialization. Didn't Even Trump was forced in a certain way to evoke that law or rule, I don't know, which was, I think, first practiced by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that in a wartime or a state of emergency, the state has to have the right to order companies what to do and so on and so on. In other words, you have to do things which should absolutely not be left to uh, market regulation. That's one thing. The other thing, now I get more problematic, I mean this ironically, of course, terror. <laughs> of course, I am against terror in the Stalinist or fascist way. But uh, some kind of uh, social control limitation is obviously uh, uh, necessary. Then egalitarianism. All countries are cheating. But we gained something. In principle, they had to accept that it's all of us or nobody that in principle the vaccine should be universally available and so on and so on. Uh, and trust of the people. So these are for me Elements, not just people telling me you are utopian here. No, it's not so simple. Even those in power 
have in principle to accept these elements. This is what the situation demands. And of course, the hope of the establishment is that, okay, we do this for one year maximum. When the crisis is over, we return to our old normality. No, this exactly, I am afraid to say, because this involves a lot of, will involve a lot of pain, is not possible, will not happen. First, we already have problems. What is the efficiency of the vaccine? Uh, obviously, the pandemic will go on. I'm even afraid to think about other pandemics, about global warming and so on and so on. We, unfortunately, will just need some more traumatic, critical, shocking situation and, mm. and more I hope it will become clear that we cannot play this double game, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, pandemic, but we shouldn't hurt, uh, or how do the right-wingers say, not only Trump, their popular phrase is, the medicine shouldn't be worse than illness itself. <laughs> my, yeah, my answer yeah. to this is, well, yes, sorry. No, no, no. I'm, I'm curious because you, you, we, I, I agree with you that the, that everything seems to be changing very dramatically, and that this is the coronavirus yeah. pandemic is is a, is ch- changes everything. And on the other hand, and the United States just elected Joe Biden, like on a very explicit campaign to what you talk about the return to normalcy, which we cannot do anymore. What do you make of Joe Biden as a political figure? Uh, you know, uh, this was, I think, in the text for Jacobin, no, even, where I mm-hmm. used that uh, one of my favorite, implicitly at least, anti-capitalist movies is John Carpenter's They Live, where yeah. aliens are already among us, and you have to use special glasses to see that behind the human face there is really an alien, you know. I called, in one of my old texts, I called that the critique of ideology glasses, you know. You think (laughs) it's a living person, you put the glasses on, you see he's just a robot working for the uh, capital or whatever, you know. And Mm -hmm. I, so I think that, uh, that, that's why I made that terrible statement uh, four years ago, to which I still stick, but not in the sense, my God, I was that I support Trump, that let's be objective now. Trump is a disgusting nightmare and so on, but with him, a certain rift, tension appeared in, we use the old-fashioned terms, the ruling class and even the ruling hegemonic ideology. And this is an opening for us. For me, in the long term, for me, Biden is why a catastrophe. Because uh, he didn't take the basic lesson from Trump, which we, the left, should take. You remember that also when Trump was doing the presidential campaign, some so-called, under quotation marks, moderates in Republican Party said, but you are going too far. We should be careful not to lose the center. No, Trump, from his dirty interests, wisely, went to the extreme, and the more he went to the extreme, the more popular he became. And I think this is why it's the most horrible thing, and also in the long term, a political mistake that I can imagine, this Biden strategy, Bernie Sanders is too much, let's not go too far in that direction, let's not lose 
the center and so on. Bernie, I didn't meet him, but I met some people who knew him, told me that Bernie was aware of this. Our, in the long term, the only chance for Democrats would have been Democratic Party not to occupy the center, but to get Trump voters, those desperate, they are not all Trump voters, but many of them are, desperate lower, mid, lower middle class farmers uh, in Vermont and so on. And so sometimes, that's the dialectical paradox of political life, the only way to build an effective majority is to go more to the extreme. Another thing that I like to repeat again and again about Bernie Sanders, when people say socialist, communist, whatever. Listen, if you compare Bernie's program with uh, ordinary, not extreme, social democracy in Europe half a century ago, Bernie is more moderate than them. This shows the regression of our entire space and so on and so on. So I think that uh, the left shouldn't now fall into this trap of now the fascist danger of Trump is the only big danger. No, now is the point to ask a deeper question. What where was the democratic establishment doing wrong that something like Trump could have emerged? This is the crucial question. If that's why I'm a moderate pessimist here, if you ask me. If we will just try to restore normality, balance, and so on, we will precisely in the long term be reproducing the situation which gave birth to which gave birth to Trump. I think it's uh, it's the the ultimate enemy for me, not that they are worse than Trump, I'm not saying this, is this democratic centrist establishment, because they are de facto hegemonic. And whatever you say about Trump, I do hate him, he's incredibly vulgar and so on, but he disturbed this uh, hegemonic center. Let's do the same thing from the left. That's our only chance, I think. Yeah, you know, it seemed like the Democrats felt that the threat coming from Bernie in terms of his destabilization was stronger than what came from Trump because Trump acted as a solidifying force for their base, um, including their donor base, whereas Bernie could fracture it um, and and in that way presented a unique problem for them, uh, particularly with their campaign efforts on the ground in down-ballot races. Um, Did you read? Sorry, I'm, oh, no. I'm Please go on. I interrupted well, you. I'm very I sincerely to ask you, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about... Don't provoke um, me, because if you say it's okay, <laughs> I'm a man, then, then, then I will fun. say, if it's okay, then I will do it all the time. Okay. <laughs> Maybe when Please I say it's okay, on. it means that I can, I can uh, deal with it adequately oh, enough. No. Not that <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I wanted to ask you about something that you say in your Jacobin article where you're talking about futurology. And I wanted to kind of relate that to the two um, types of normals that you were talking to talking about before. One is the kind of 
Um, well, it's unclear if this was just like a turf laying campaign, but the right wing, let's get back to normal slogan that yeah. did resonate with a lot of people. And I think their normal, what that signifier is, is very different than the Biden campaign's normal. Um, and I think both are depending on what you define as like futurology. And in your article, you say, quote, futurology deals with what is possible. We need to do what is from the standpoint of the existing global order impossible. Um, so we've seen, you know, two dominant calls for going back to what is possible yeah. for for debating a future based off of what we believe is possible. You're calling for a departure there. Can you, um, you know, clarify that more and talk to our viewers about what you mean? Well, I'm, I, I don't think this is good for me, what I will say now, but I must openly admit that I cannot deliver, give you a precise point-by-point point program. The only thing that I can conclude is that if we refocus on the pandemic, it's clear that there is no solution without, not only without an efficient state apparatus, we need it, but without the state being supported by a lower, lower in the sense of more basic local communities. For example, friends were telling me the most touching story was that I heard from Madrid <coughs> and Barcelona, but mostly Madrid. The state did, was doing very bad in March, April. Then people did locally something that in old communist jargon we called, or in Cuba we called, or rather called, local committees for the defense of the revolution, you know. Locally, people organize themselves without any tell, anybody telling them how. Just people who were most active in a couple of blocks, and they say, okay, let's go through those who live in our small community. Let's see, are there any old people who need direct help, this, that, and so on, and so on. And without this, the catastrophe would have been much worse. Friends from Vietnam are telling me, because, you know, the miracle is not just, as they like to emphasize a little bit too much, China. Never forget, I say this to annoy my pro-Chinese old Maoist friends, don't forget Taiwan, which has an even better record than China, and honor to communists who are in power still, don't forget Vietnam, where Again, it's not only the state. This old from the war against the United States Army, all this long tradition of local committees, local communities was remobilized. And on the opposite end, an authentic international cooperation. Everybody in principle agrees with this. But... Uh, we will have to make a step further because it's clear that if you are not lucky the way New Zealand is, which is simply an island and so on, uh, uh, the only way is tight international cooperation. I don't believe, as some people accuse me, in directly passing to some kind of a global world government. No, in, if we do this with present political structures, admitted that it was meant incredible uh, global corruption, new forms of exploitation, and so on and so on. But serious 
cooperation. For example, what World Health Organization is trying to do, it should get much stronger. We need a central agency, which at least gives us the proper statistic. We know so little how it happens. What is, even with numbers, you know, these numbers don't mean a lot, that maybe we all read on Worldometer and so on and so on. Like, uh, you know, there are many countries which report as dead from COVID more people than the numbers say, because Belgium, it's not as bad as it appears. They have this rule. If you die for whatever reason, if you had COVID, it's counted as COVID death. Then there are other countries like Turkey, I hear from my friends and I hear also about Russia, where they try to keep the numbers of death low by re-categorizing it like many COVID cases are simply counted as uh, as, as lung, other lung diseases and so on and so on. So we need this type of global cooperation, not just for pandemic, but for global warming. Look, an old story, I repeat it all the times, I will repeat it again. You remember, you are, you are younger than me, but not so young, so young. <laughs> Do you remember the Fukushima accident, you know? Yeah. 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 A friend of mine, a very good futurologist, but in a good sense of catastrophes, was there, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, was there two days after, and learned that, you know, that for, for one day almost, the Japanese government was in total panic because it looked that the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people would have to be evacuated, where in a rational order of global cooperation, it's clear you have to make some deal with Russia because now, again, because of global warming, you have vast territories in Northeastern Siberia, which can be, but uh, in today's situation, the the only solution would have been war or whatever. You know, the same they did it in in history when some people were not able to continue living where they were living. They left, and they went. Uh, they left, and then it was war. Either they want killing the others or not, and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that today with chemical weapons, uh, nuclear weapons and all that, uh, the old way would lead to a global catastrophe sooner or later. So the only choice we have here is what I call the Zardos, did you see the old, was it Sean Connery or which movie? And there is the new one, I always forget the title, with Matt Damon, I think, where the elite lives on a... Elysium. Elysium, yes. So it's either Elysium or global cooperation, if you ask me. It's clear that this is a choice. And when people tell me you are a utopian, I tell them, wait a minute. Already those in power, look at them what they are doing. They are acting in such a way that it's clear that they don't believe their own predictions. Like the most obscene thing I found is, and I, in a strange way, this fascinates me. Again, my petit bourgeois fascist. <laughs> you know, these reports about how in the abandoned wartime bunkers in the, in the Rocky Mountains and so on, rich are building whole 
underground <laughs> cities and so yeah. on. Yeah. For example, yeah. my friends in New Zealand are telling me, you know, that... I looked at some of the pamphlets for the luxury bunker, bunkers because I have another yes. job working for a wealthy um, author and she received them and they were wild. They are wild. They seem to have everything except a therapist. And when you think of living through global collapse <laughs> in a bunker yeah. with a couple other people, maybe like that aspect of things might be the most important. But they're like, no, big screen TV, heated pool, place for your dog. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. This is this is for me an obscenity. And here, yeah. this uh, awakens my worst. I admit it, Stalinist instincts, you know. Like, for example, yeah. I would say, okay, yeah. not for the new nomenclatura, but somehow I would prohibit this. They did one step towards this very wisely, although I don't idealize them, but nonetheless, in New Zealand, you know, they simply, so many billionaires were buying houses there that they simply had to stop it. it this is... What I call, uh, what's the big Vancouver phenomenon? Mm, this yeah. central island, which is beautiful, upper middle class, the paradise of all of us, you know. And, and, uh, people who live there practically cannot afford buy an apartment uh, there, you know. Yeah. So, uh, incidentally, what you mentioned about Twitter and so on, uh, I, in my secret Stalinist dreams, I'm much worse than just uh, controlling it socially. I don't know. Okay, it will, I don't mean it quite seriously. It's my dream. But I would prohibit Twitter in my heartland yeah. communist I agree. There's a lot yes, of people. people are losing time there and so on. I wouldn't yeah. mind a kind of a secret police control. And if they find <laughs> you using Twitter more than one hour per day, you have to do some work like cleaning toilets in the dirtiest hospital for one week, 10 hours per day. Something is so wrong by each, although Chomsky often attacks me, you know. But at that point, I agree with him. He was asked once, and he admitted it's not just censorship. Why doesn't he more often appear on big TV, mm -hmm. uh, uh, all these different talk shows, no? And he says, the rhythm is crazy. It's the uh, tweeting rhythm, you know? You, mm -hmm. you have usually less than one minute, you are already interrupted and so on. You cannot even develop a line of thought. Mm -hmm. And that's why I like to be here. You should interrupt me even more often, <laughs> because I think that's the most horrible thing. Even I caught myself on the way we live in digital universe now. Like, I live in a small country where we are lucky. Maybe, maybe it's not good for me to say this, but uh, big movie companies don't care if you download uh, movies illegally, because the whole of Slovenia is 2,000. Who cares? They would have to invest too much, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but you know, I remember how this instant availability, you want to see even an old movie, you go, you download it, in a strange way it uh, affected the way I watch. I limit myself to a couple of clips and then I say, oh, but maybe I have another choice, better and so on. At the end, I just take a look at a couple of uh, clips and so on and so on. And I'm here an old-fashioned 
philosopher, I think. What we need is precisely this slow, more peaceful, not peaceful in the sense of avoiding social contacts, but peaceful in the sense of that you take, because there is the take a step back, because there is the right type of urgency, you know, like, my God, catastrophe, we have to do it. But admitted that our culture also often mobilizes the wrong kind of urgency. Like, for example, once years ago, I listened to a debate with Bill Gates, and he said, why even deal? These are just big words with all this problem, socialism, capitalism. Why do we, all honest people, not simply come together and do something and so on? You know, this reformulation yeah. of basic problems into this practical, pragmatical issues is a catastrophe. Because as I always repeat it, the way we formulate a problem is usually part of the problem. My example, I wonder if you, Ariel, would agree with me here, is that, uh, this often I repeat this point, I'm sorry, it's that, uh, did we notice how the fight against racism is usually in the liberal center uh, reformulated in the terms of tolerance? which I yeah. think is already an ideological mystification because tolerance tends to turn it into a psycho-ideological problem. Like, let's say that I hate you black, with you, I don't know what you are. You have a strange name. What are you, Nando Villa? Are you Spanish? I'm from Spain. Or what? Sorry, I cannot. You know, I know. this might be incorrectness, but you can be, you should feel safe for one reason. My idea is be aggressive, humiliating, but this should be a sign of friendship. You know, this means we trust each other. With enemies, I never talk like this. It's called politeness. You know, you don't, uh, you don't uh, 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 talk with them. But, uh, uh, okay, sorry, I talk too much. Please ask me some questions. No, I, I see what you mean. When you frame things as an issue of tolerance, what you're saying is two yeah. things. One, that it's um, an affective issue. It's about emotion. It's about behavior. The other thing and is it psychologizes me. Yeah. But yeah. at the end, at the end, it, the problem becomes why do I, which I don't, why do I feel ill at ease at ease with you? Yeah. Black yeah. people, the problem then all of a sudden is not ideological tradition, economic yeah. exploitation, but what yeah. is my psychological trauma? Yeah. Go and to that, a psychoanalyst, I should look deep yeah. into myself. That's why I'm here for the, and I really mean it, the, if we really want to be against racism, our practice should be that of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is fake it till you make it. No, <laughs> don't spend hours with psychoanalysts. What, what we, yeah. Why don't I like black, black people? Is that I am purely ironic here. He said, when yeah. I was a small boy, I saw a black guy having sex with my ma white mother. This type of primitive... No, no, no. I believe here I am in the tradition of French, French Catholic Jansenism Pascal, who said, you don't believe, fake it as if you believe it will get you 
better. I believe in good manners. They will not save us. No, no, I'm not a liberal idealist. Yeah, you know. but, but it's still... My old, you probably didn't read my book on Lenin introduction, the old one, where I use this example. It doesn't save the situation, but it's a beautiful example. An old friend from South Africa told me that in that epoch before before Mandela took over, when there was still apartheid, he was at a demonstration, black and white together, demonstrating against apartheid, and then police attacked, and a black lady, who probably she wasn't too low class, doesn't matter. The problem is that she had high heels. Mm-hmm. Right away, one of the high heels broke off, so he had to stop and lost one, he lost one shoe. And then a medical miracle happened. You know what happened? The white policeman, and it wasn't his inner goodness, he was probably, it's just this basic, superficial, even make chauvinist manner. You see a lady in trouble, you have to help. He, mm. he, he policeman, picked up the shoe and gave it to her. Here you have it, lady. And then they looked at each other and felt like idiots. Like, what now that I have a shoe, which will start running again? <laughs> 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 Playing the game? And then they said, that they said politely, okay, all the best to you, and walked apart. You know? Yeah. Even this yeah. works. I think that yeah. we know why. Because don't you agree that today, <laughs> officially, Apart from Trump people, nobody is directly, or nobody, okay, in the United States, 30% now are directly racist. But what I fear more are these liberal, polite racists. They are absolutely for the black, for, but then you ask them, they have no black friends, they, mm-hmm. they feel uneasy. They, yeah. it's, I have somewhere listed a whole list of this everyday racism reactions. Like they say, I love black people. When I was young, you remember, we, it wasn't yet, no, you don't remember, you're too young, I hate you for that. You, <laughs> you, we didn't have these earphones, you had those boom boxes. That you yeah, had. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, really? My God, yeah. I thought the time was before you. <laughs> or are you super plastically operated or whatever? No, yeah. let's stop. <laughs> no, what I'm, I'm a robot. Put the glasses on. I'm not real. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I, they leave. Yeah. But uh, I will see yeah. another Trump's daughter or what. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> what I want to say is that uh, this was one of the typical white people's reproaches, just their music is too loud, or yeah. typical, they laugh too loudly, you know. This mm-hmm. this is, don't forget about the efficiency, efficiency, sorry, of this absolutely ordinary everyday racism, which yeah. is not even a part of ideology in this strict sense of a system of... Uh, yeah. Of uh, theoretically grounded, as you turn prejudices on all this, but it's just this everyday unease. Or yeah. in France, it was discovered that in in subway in Paris metro, they asked people why they avoid metro, and their point was bad people. I have nothing against them, but they smell bad, and so on. You know, <laughs> like this. This is 
don't underestimate the efficiency of this. I think that the true, that's why, would you also agree with this? And especially this is for me the lesson of Black, Black Lives Matter and so on. That, that uh, the movement should go on like I am from my European perspective. I am sick and tired of this great event. You remember three years ago or when, when it was the book, big moment of, 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 uh, of Podemos in Spain. Mm-hmm. Half a million people persisted for days on the central square and all my friends were fascinated. And then I repeated my old joke. I told them, and what will happen then? You will return home and meet once year in a cafeteria. Uh, oh my God, how and remembering that moment. And then in the middle of that, your phone will ring, you are needed in your bank and you will meet. <laughs> like uh, the true test of a revolution or social change is for me precisely when this big enthusiastic moment is over, how do ordinary people feel the change? the everyday level. And if yeah. I were yeah. black, that's how I would have began. Not, yeah, yeah, we all demonstrate against racism. Let's see how you treat me at this uh, everyday level. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> it's been just um, completely subsumed into um, this liberal framework where it's exactly as you said, there's a discomfort and people are starting to think that their own personal comfort and discomfort are a political terrain, which in my opinion, they're not, but they do try to make inroads or say, I mean, I personally have gotten, I lived in Portland, Oregon, which is like the Mecca of these people where they'd be like, Oh, I love your natural hair. You're so exotic. You know, they're trying to do things to prove that they have access to the social capital of tolerance, but tolerance presupposes a fixed category. And part of the experience of being black is that when you're in the fixed category, if someone's like, into the fixed category or not into it, it doesn't matter because it denies you your humanity. You don't have any agency against the category they imagine they're being tolerant or intolerant yeah. of. And and that personally feels quite terrible. I think for every black person in America, they can relate to that no matter what side of the aisle or, or political spectrum they're on, is this denial of self where you're constantly trying to break that. Um, and, you know, we've, we have had like incredible... Um, writing about this uh, for decades and decades. Um, But I think what we're starting to see is because there's a political failure of the tolerance approach or of boutique multiculturalism or uh, the liberal approach at race as bad feeling, people are starting to look at the political terrain. And I think that's one of the things that underpins the defund argument is like, what are the resources in a community and how do people actually gain access to them? Or what is the um, effect of violence or um, state violence or symbols of state violence? How does that change the way people interact and feel? And I think those are the conversations that we need to be pushing because I'm sick of people telling me they like my natural hair, but <laughs> yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I had a similar experience and I think I did a wonderful thing. We were sitting at a table after some conference in New York, some 10 people with uh, uh, some of them were blacks and we did the politically correct thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we went you to some to Ethiop- Ethiopian <laughs> restaurant, you know, like uh, anti-Eurocentric. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, there was a black guy, not totally black, from Ethiopia there also, no? 
And I did something very risky. I said, I hate this shitty Ethiopian food. You know what the Ethiopian guy said? I also hate it. So he went with me. We went out to an old-fashioned hamburger place and enjoyed it and told them, you eat. Because, you know, this uh, it's so important. That's for me the limit of tolerant identity politics. That's why white liberals like you, black, to play your identity card. Yeah. And yeah. here I see That's the awkward. opposition between that Haiti, all citizens are black. Mm-hmm. No. They like you in your particularity, but what you should do is what they try to do in Haiti, to show how your particular identity, if taken seriously, implies a new form of universality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Particularity, I say I'm all for particularity. But what, what, what this particular identity means in the terms of universality? You know, every particularity, like, it's clear that this, uh, uh, our way, they are stealing our way of life, what Trump protesters uh, mm-hmm. claim. They, they in, of course, they will not say we are racist, but if you ask them what their position implies, we are there. But I want to say something else. Did you notice this detail, which is totally insignificant, but I think it had a symbolic meaning. You know that total idiot, jerk, uh, the guy in the Capitol, who had a kind of a Viking... Oh, oh, yeah, the Q-Nan shaman. The q yeah, shaman. Yeah, yeah, but you know the joke. I know this because I admit another part of my proto-fascist tendency, I uh, admired Nordic myth Vikings. You know that these helmets with horns, they never existed. They are the early 19th century cultural invention of late romanticism. Some people think it in some late Karl Maria Weber and early uh, Richard Wagner's operas that they were first invented. So much about, you know, whites who want to defend their tradition. Also, at another point, uh, do you think this is too risky, what I will say now, but I think it's not. We radical leftists should not just be with all my support for LGBT, and I mean it seriously. I precisely defined it why they are, as it were, the symptom of this all. They should be supported. But I think that we should do something else. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the idea came to me with that unfortunate debate with uh, Jordan Peterson, no? Yeah. He has this idea, we lack firm values, postmodern historicism, relativism. Mm-hmm. My point is, is not to accept the debate the way the enemy formulates it. And then you defend, no, there is no common decency, we all have our manners. But to say, wait a minute, I agree with you, but why are you then for Trump? Don't you agree that if there ever was a cynical, relativist, historicist, without any stable values person, it's not Trump. In this critical sense, he is the true historicist relativist. And if there is somebody who has 
I know how problematic this term, the term is. I use it as a provocation. If there is somebody who really deserves the name moral majority, simple decency, it's Bernie Sanders. So mm, we yeah. be afraid, not in any compromises, like, okay, we agree with you, white, white, decent people, we shouldn't too much look for the, care for the black people. No, to convince them that we who care for blacks, other races, feminism, we speak on behalf of common decency and so on. Yeah. This is important today because the first mistake of many leftists is to accept the terrain the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's framed by the right. Uh, state yeah. formulated uh, by, by the enemy. So if you yeah. ask me, did you read a good text by Warren Montag, where he, I forgot where, where from a California a Marxist who said that uh, uh, who on uh, the one hand claimed that, and we shouldn't, uh, that's uh, to conclude one remark I want to make, very important, I think, that uh, there was also some kind of a carnival moment in what happened in uh, on the capital, you know, this mob going wild and so on. And that's what should give us to think, you know, many leftists think, even uh, Negri and Hart developed this, I think, in their first book, The Big Hit, uh, 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 Multitude and so on, that, uh, that carnival is the moment of freedom where social rules are suspended, Yeah, but you know, I'm very ambiguous about it. When the social rules are suspended, it's also the worst of you that comes back. Sorry, but in the American South, in the 20s and later, the carnival was raping black women and lynching black men. Smiling in front of it, yeah. Yeah, Kristallnacht was also a carnival. And then... uh, But the structure of that, I mean, it's not without structure. It's not a space of freedom. It's just... No, um, no, I I totally agree with you. Now, at least, sorry. ...of decency. You know, it's it's just... FBI wants, as if by mistake, FBI is doing some, I wouldn't say good stuff, but stuff that we can use. More and more it shows this wasn't just a lower class crowd staging a carnival then. First, they were, most of them, not only middle, but even upper middle class. They, and, uh, they even, I love these details, do you know that they even flew mostly business class to Washington yeah. instead of yeah. expensive yeah, yeah. hotels there. And second thing... You can't sit in control when you're going to go take down the U.S. government. You've got to get no. the, that leg room. Yeah, but yeah. okay, Warren Montag's problem is, of course, that even if Trump disappears, the movement... Because according to some statistic estimates, you now have almost half the Republican Party, which means all in all about 30 million voters who agreed with the attack on the Capitol, who support violent action. Okay, this time, hopefully, it will also not, it didn't work for them. But then Warren Montag is the fear, what if in the next generation, a more rational, calculating, intelligent guy will come 
Yeah. Yes, but I just wouldn't use these terms because remember that people say Trump is crazy, uh, uh, cognitively limited, denying things, but never forget that this was also the reason of his success, you know, mm-hmm. precisely this denialism. And so, so it's not so simple. I, I think that if you look at successful right-wing fascist leaders like Hitler, he was even more hysterical and so on than Trump in the yeah. public. But at the same time, he was more successful in getting the support of big industry and so on, all that, all that. You know, that, that's why the, the one, would you agree here, the one, and if I say this, I will immediately appear a sexist, I know, <laughs> like a beautiful woman. The best reaction till now was AOC, you know, who, who said, okay, till now for strategic reasons, short term, we supported Biden, now the fight begins again, immediately against the democratic establishment. And yeah. the big yeah. danger I see, would you agree with it or not, is that Biden will try to blackmail you, you, American left, by saying, but since our minority is now lower in, uh, in the Congress, if we want to pass that measure, you should, we should all join to defeat the Republicans and so on and so on. Yeah. No, here we should, the so-called democratic socialism, whatever we call them, we should take some risks now, yeah. because yeah. literally we stand for the future. Biden yeah. is, right. uh, Biden is, as I put it in another text, slightly provocatively, uh, Trump with a human face. Although I think I was wrong there, because at the same time, in some vulgar sense, Trump is Biden with a human face. Biden is a big, big capital establishment, but with all his obscenities, dirty jokes, Trump, who stands for the same, gave in the vulgar sense of it's, it's human to be vulgar, a kind of a human sense. Well, I, yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think that that's, uh, I think that that's a place to wrap it up. Uh, Slavoj, I don't want to take much more of your time. Thank you so, so much for being with us. This was so much fun. It's always. Can I um, finish with a mega, one minute, less, mega provocation. Once when I praised AOC, some guy attacked me in a, vulgar way, claiming, ah, this is just beautiful, and then he used the expression, I will not repeat it here, which is, I think, the usual vulgar American expression for a man wanting to have sex with a woman, you would just like to S, screw her brain yeah. out. Yeah. Admit it or not, and especially to you, Arlevansio, I think I gave a very good feminist answer. I said... <laughs> Maybe, but I cannot do it because her brain, not just her looks, is really so big, it's very bright, it's brilliant what she's doing, that I'm too old to S out all her brain. <laughs> I think this is a be- vulgar but a beautiful answer. You know? let's, this is what I like to do. Let's accept the vulgar terrain, but let's turn it around from within, you know. Yeah. 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 Because I really think, no, I was quite shocked 
at the beginning, it was, I admit it, I'm a male chauvinist, her beauty, but then I saw some of her congressional hearings and so on. Wait a minute, she is really bright to Catalonia. You know, she is really yeah. bright. No? So I think that if really, as she said, she felt threatened that uh, they wanted to kill her, where if I were the, the Viking guy or Odolf, you know, well, I would <laughs> begin by killing her. <laughs> the Viking guy really didn't didn't uh, fulfill the the Viking prophecies. There, he didn't kidnap or sell anyone into slavery. No. <laughs> yeah, I think is that nonetheless, I think it was meant more as a carnival, which doesn't mean that it's not serious. My formula here is I use it. You know, Marx said first as a tragedy, then as a farce. Yeah. But as already Herbert Marcuse said about Nazism, remember, it began as a carnivalesque farce in the 20s in Germany. That the experience of uh, fascism tells us first as a farce, then as a tragedy. You had the farce now, in spite of that. Basically, it was a carnival. But let's wait and see. Yeah, and that's where we are. Is this live? Yes, it yes, is live. It's live oh my yeah. God. So you cannot do the Stalinist censorship. Okay, yeah. I ask you, I'm sorry that I don't smoke because of all that I've said here, then I should have asked you, send me cigarettes to prison. You know, but I'm beyond that. I don't care. I'm really well, Slavos, grateful. If you come back up, we'll send you cigarettes. We'll also Absolutely. see if Jacqueline can get a dominatrix to, you know, enforce some of those yeah. question times. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that you need with me. Did you see, but I don't like it. It no longer works. James Bond movie, Goldfinger. Yes. You remember the famous car with the red button? That yes. You press the red button and you're, the guy sitting next to you, the idea is his. Yeah. Having mm. a gun that you controlled is thrown out, no? Well, I Maybe next time that. when I go in these obscene topics, you need a red button. <laughs> Put the red button for self-injection. Yeah. 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 Thanks very much, really. Thank Thanks you. Very much. Really appreciate Bye-bye. it. Bye-bye.